I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today, on today's podcast, y'all, this is actually so adorable because the guest that we have for today's podcast, I wish you could have all been here to see Kate react when we actually booked this author for the show. Or seen my behavior in the attempt to book this author for this show. It's unfortunate that Kate doesn't have a pair of tap shoes because she would have been quite the performer doing a little tap dance, a little happy tap dance all around the house. That's really interesting because I think even if I had tap shoes, I wouldn't tap dance because I'm too much of a basketball player to get caught up in something like tap dancing. But that's exactly what I mean. You normally have swagger and stride, but because we booked Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven and the newly released The Glass hotel, you were like doing a little ashi dance where your feet were all dainty and you were tiptoeing around and you were bouncy and you were so excited. We should remember this moment when you called me dainty. I know. That's adorable. It's definitely not. But I, I am so excited to have Emily St. John Mandel on the show because I, I love Station Eleven and we loved her new book, The Glass Hotel. And as you'll hear in the conversation, we talk about a couple of themes in the glass hotel like one is just this concept of money as its own like country country there you go and then the other that is near and dear to my heart and a thread that runs through a lot of emily st john mandel's work is like this apocalyptic craving that's what I call it. The in, a non, in a non-zombie way. Yeah, because Station Eleven was about a pandemic. And so there you go. There's your apocalyptic thread. And then she has a character in The Glass Hotel that, when, when this character is very young, posits this question of, like, kind of craving being a part of a kind of apocalyptic moment. And is that something that's inside all of us? So this is where Kate and I completely go our separate ways in the wood, less traveled path. I wear tap shoes as I go my separate way. You do. You, you, you tap down the yellow brick road and... To darkness. To, to darkness and despair and zombies. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Kate, and I think we already talked about it in this season, one of the first things that she had us do was watch Contagion as soon as we were in our stay-at-home order, which is not exactly the kind of movie that I would like to watch personally. And it's not for, I, I don't go into paranoia mode, but I also, I just, I don't understand the, the fantasy right. with the world falling apart. Yeah, so this is something that we have touched on in previous seasons, possibly previous episodes. I have this deep, seated internal leaning to anything apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, any momentous historical like shift in human life, I like feel a craving toward. And it's not an intellectual craving. Like I know that it creates pain and wreaks havoc and there's often all of the obviously moments like that lead to death and destruction and a reshaping or maybe just an ending of the world. And I'm, I'm talking about movies and books and all that. So intellectually, I realized that's something ridiculous to like feel a, like a leaning toward. But I also can defend myself by saying that I think there's such a belief we can fall into that we're so insignificant in the grand scheme of life and that in in human history there's there's going to be only a certain number maybe only one moment that is like the apocalyptic moment whether it's the sun exploding or or something else and I think there's this part inside of me that thinks that to be alive and present for that moment is something so cosmically significant that that like trumps my individual like human pursuit of life 
Does that, does, that, does that make any sense to you at all? Like to be alive during some sort of cosmic apocalypse? You would moment? rather see it fall apart than survive it. No, 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 because I don't want to die in this, right? Because it's like, I don't, I'm not saying that I truly feel. You would like to be in a safe journalistic bubble somewhere where you could observe it? I, no, I'm saying that when these, when movies and books come out about this, it scratches the itch of that without putting myself in perilous danger. Because you because would ultimately, die in Jurassic Park. <laughs> because ultimately I know I don't want to be alive for the apocalyptic moment because then I will no longer be alive. But I think that there's some sort of deep... And if you survived it, you probably would only last a day. <laughs> I am trying, I'm trying to say something that I haven't tried to articulate before, and you are turning me to a Jurassic Park character. Well, why do you think that this is so appealing for you for apocalypse? You like apocalypse. You, you like, you know, like what are those Gerard Butler movies... Like a, like like a n- nuclear yeah. war movie. Yeah, or- you love World War II movies, and yet if I like I, big action. If explosion. I want to, yeah, but if I want to put on something fantasy driven like Lord of the Rings, I feel like you kind of poo poo that, and I think that is of the same caliber of this epic journey destruction. I mean, Frodo, little you know, little tiny tiny Frodo has the ring. He has the end of the world in his hands. Is that what that is? Clearly, Kate has not spent <laughs> a lot of time watching Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he throws the, it into the volcano. The ring is in the title. He throws it into the volcano. Of the story. You got to throw it into the volcano. Mount Doom. Well, I think, I, I mean, I want to, let's get, we should get to Emily St. John Mandel and let, because we, you know, touch on so many different topics within the Glass Hotel and, and, and Station 11. But I think a couple of weeks ago on Free Cookies, you mentioned that you always have to go to the bathroom when you're in a bookstore and like people came out of <laughs> to the clarify, woodwork. I have to poop. It's not just like I have to go to the bathroom. But people came out of the woodwork to express their allegiance with you that th- this is a thing that also happens to them and I guess what I want is I want my tribe here. I want the people who understand what I'm trying to articulate to reach out and say, Kate, I feel that too and I, that I'm not a sociopath. I think way more people are going to reach out to you than the amount of people who've reached out to me saying that they have to poop too when they go to a bookstore. <laughs> okay, this is not the kind of elevated introduction that Emily St. John Mandel deserves. I'm hoping she won't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's bring her on. Emily St. John Mandel's four previous novels include Station Eleven, which was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award, and has been translated into 32 languages. She lives in New York City with her husband and daughter, and she is the author of The Class Hotel, which was released earlier this month. We are now joined by Emily St. John Mandel, author of the newly minted New York Times bestselling book, The Glass Hotel. Yeah, congratulations. And also the author of four previous novels as well, but congrats on the, on the New York Times distinction. Thank you so much. That made my month. <gasps> <laughs> no, I mean, quickly, I know there's lots of things we want to talk about, but we, we saw on your Instagram you know, that it had been, it was number four. Did you see the person who was like, let's go for number one? And were you like, can I just enjoy this moment, please? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, can I throw you out a window? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to move the goalpost yeah. already. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, you know, it's a funny thing being in the book business uh, where a lot of people who aren't in the business feel that they have quite a clear idea of how our business works. And, you know, just want to give me career advice. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was one of those. But, you know, it was well-intentioned. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful. It's it's such a weird, hard time just kind of for everybody in general. And, yeah, we should celebrate where we can. That was a really nice, bright spot for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And so speaking of that, what what has it been like launching this book in the middle of a pandemic? Um, did did you have a big tour schedule planned or assuming there was something like that going on? Yeah, I had a 25 city tour on the calendar. Um, yeah, us, Canada and UK. Um, yeah, it's been a really weird time. I mean, that's almost like a truism. It's like saying the sky's blue. (laughs) It's been, it's been so weird for everybody. Um, but you know, I have to say launching a book in a time when I can't really leave my house, 
I thought it worked out a lot better than I thought it would. Um, I was kind of creeped out by the idea of doing digital events. Like I'm just not that into it in theory, but they've been amazing. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to people who don't live in my house. (laughs) Even just to like see other people's houses through the Zoom webinar windows. Um, You know, it's kind of a pleasure. Um, So yeah, I've actually really been enjoying the virtual events. I feel like if we're being honest here, um, the impact for me of all of this happening on my book launch was never going to be terrible. Um, because I, because my previous book was really successful. I think that the writers who we really need to support and who are having a really tough time with this are the debut novelists, yeah. you know, and uh, small press writers uh, who really depend on the discoverability factor that a small bookstore, that the independent bookstore offers. You know, when you go into the store and there's the table of books by the front door and half of them you've never heard of. They've been curated from... Yeah, by booksellers. And that's where I've discovered a lot of books that really didn't have the marketing push that the Glass Hotel has had. So I'm very aware of how fortunate and, you know, um, how fortunate I am in this regard. There, um, I was rereading, Emily, I was rereading Station Eleven because, yes, it goes without saying, it's incredibly timely right now. Um, and yeah. you have this one line that just gave me the chills when I read it. And it, the line was, hell is the absence of people you long for. And, you know, as we're on day 823 is what it feels like of, you yeah, know, being in yeah. our homes. Does that, you know, resonate for you in this moment? Yeah, it does. I was going to be hanging out with my family this week. Um, I had a West Coast tour. My whole family is in British Columbia. So, yeah, I was going to be traveling around city to city with my daughter and my mom, who lives on Vancouver Island. And then we were going to spend a long weekend at her place, and my brothers and sisters were going to be there. And, yeah, I'm really feeling the loss of that pretty acutely. Um, At the same time, I have to say that... Being able to connect via, say, FaceTime, you know, it's not the mm-hmm. same. Of course, I would way rather be there, but it's something. Mm-hmm. Every uh, every day, uh, I have a four-year-old daughter, and we eat lunch around 11.30, which is 8.30 in British Columbia. So we've gotten into the habit of uh, FaceTiming my mom and stepdad every day. And we eat lunch while they eat breakfast. And, you know, it's something. It's, uh, it's a nice little point of connection in the day. So, yeah, seeking out those where I can. But I, I do really miss these people. So Emily, I'm not sure this is like a delineating line, but I guess it's one for our times. Are you someone who would watch Contagion the movie during a pandemic or not watch it? (laughs) Um, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm someone who would buy Contagion on iTunes and then say, what are you doing? You're insane. And not watch it. That's what what I've done. (laughs) Watch the preview. (laughs) I've seen the preview. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, what I realized as I was downloading it, you know, because I was thinking like, you know, what are you doing? This is moronic. Um, is I realized that what I was really thinking is I just want to know how this ends. Like, you know, this, the uncertainty is, uh, is difficult to deal with. Like knowing that it's going to get um, exponentially, literally exponentially worse, but not knowing what that actually looks like. So, yeah, I think that's what I was thinking when I downloaded it. And then I came to my senses and didn't watch it. <laughs> I, well, I, never, I, I never came to my sentence. Yeah, I don't I know what it says about the health of our relationship, yeah. but that was one of the first things Kate had us watch <laughs> right. as yeah. soon as we were on lockdown is we had to watch that movie. Yeah, and then I think last week yeah. I was like, yeah. you should watch it again. And I'm Catherine like, was no. like, why? <laughs> why are we doing this to ourselves? <laughs> I mean, I, I've read about that movie. Are there useful tips in it for being in quarantine? Because Matt Damon keeps his daughter in quarantine for like a year, right? Yes, and a lot of people are in quarantine. But it it, it is useful in the way that, all we see are like the coronavirus task force updates on CNN or whatever news outlet you're watching. And this movie mm-hmm. is, seems very like it, it had a researcher who was involved in like the CDC because it takes you behind the scenes and like contact tracing and they use they the phrase social, social distancing. distancing. So <laughs> if you, if you crave oh, that right. kind of like insidery knowledge in a Hollywood way, it does kind of scratch that. Itch. It felt well researched. Right. I'll give them that. Yes. Okay. Anyway, good. Good. But this, that, that was kind of like the, the lead into my question which was based on actually page 26 of The Glass Hotel. You have one of your characters, Melissa, say, uh, do you find yourself sort of secretly hoping that civilization collapses just so that something will happen? And 
basing off of, you know, Station 11 for our listeners who, who don't know is about the Georgian flu, which wipes out 99% of the population. I'm wondering, are you, how do you, how would you describe yourself in terms of someone who, who, who thinks about like apocalyptic things? Is there any part of you that kind of like has that dark kind of leaning toward them? Um, no, but you know what I was thinking about in that line. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while since I looked at that section, that that's in the chapter set in 1999, right? Where they're right. thinking about Y2K. And I kind of remember having that feeling in 1999. You know, I was, um, oh, I don't know, 19 or 20. Uh, I guess I would have been 19. Um, yeah, and just, you know, that sort of... I don't know if you call 19 a teenager, but pretty close. Um, that really kind of uh, naive sense of excitement, like what if it all collapses and things get like really exciting, you know, like an action movie, um, which is kind of, I think, the mindset you only have when you're a teenager, you know, by adulthood. That's, uh, that's not really a thing. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so I definitely don't have that now, but that is something that I remember from that time. <laughs> so uh, I'm just laughing so hard because Kate is obsessed with anything apocalyptic. That doesn't mean I crave it in the real world. <laughs> I just have a leaning toward yeah. consuming those goods. And uh, the yeah, thing that yeah. I've noticed as well, and someone brought this up in our book club where they loved your book and they want more books like yours that are apocalyptic, but not that doesn't include zombies, which is an interesting thing that zombies seem to always be correlated with post-apocalyptic Yeah, because fiction. you want things to be happening yeah. and zombies still are still somewhat alive, so then they can do things in most... Anyway. I hate yeah. zombies. Anyway, back, yeah, back to... Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, and, like, you know, I definitely prefer an apocalypse without zombies, like, given the choice. Thank given you. the choice, thank you. I would be on your team yeah. for that as well. <laughs> yeah. No machetes for me. Um, okay, so in the Glass Hotel, th- something that I've been picking up on is this concept with your characters of the why not? Like, why not me? Why not? It seems like most of your characters have this moment where there's a lack of accountability going on Mm -hmm. and maybe reaching for the most convenient offering. And I'm just wondering if that was a theme that you had before you started writing it or if it happened as you were putting it together. It's just a really interesting conceit so far. Oh, thank you. That's interesting. I haven't really spotted that, but it's um, it's always happened. It's like writing a book is so different from analyzing a book. You know, totally. often I'll talk to someone who's come up with all of these really intelligent like observations about the book. And I'm like, huh, I never thought of that. But there. <laughs> um, I think that maybe goes back to a certain mindset that I had myself, um, I guess really specifically in my early 20s, where... You know, I was just kind of like up for uh, adventure is too strong a word. I didn't do anything that crazy. But um, yeah, I did kind of have that mindset. You know, so when a boy, for example, I was living in Toronto. My boy, I had a boyfriend in New York. And when he invited me to move in with him, which required, um, you know, moving to a foreign country, quitting my job and like closing my bank accounts and just like seeing what happened. um, That was kind of my mindset. It was like, okay, well, yeah, that's. That, that sounds really interesting. Why not? <laughs> so I, I remember what it felt to live that way, even though, you know, at this point, I'm middle-aged with a kid and a mortgage. Like, it's just a very different <laughs> set of values in terms of decision-making. <laughs> but that was really how I thought when I was in my early 20s, which, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's about the age those characters are, or at least, you know, the age they were in those stories they're relating. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's there's things that you can do when you're young and naive that you can't do later, you know, when you understand a little bit more about the world. But there's a, and you know, it is naive, but there's a certain freedom in it. So, so the structuring of the, the Glass Hotel and similarly Station Eleven and from things I've read, sounds like some of your earlier novels too are, are kind of fragmented, nonlinear. And I know mm-hmm. you, you've talked about this a, a little bit, Emily, about, about, I, well, some of the interviews I read about how like maybe someday you'll write like a chronological beginning, middle, end story, but for now you're drawn to these nonlinear, fragmented plots. Like, what if you had to almost assess like what what is it that you're that you think you kind of like you crave about those or that you are drawn to about writing that way? I think um, to be honest, I think I kind of like the tightrope performance of it. It's um, it's a really challenging, really interesting way to tell a story. 
Um, with the glass hotel, though, I was really trying to be a little bit more organized and like less fragmented. Um, what my original idea, and you probably saw this in the same interviews, um, was okay. So I'm obsessed with David Mitchell's novel Cloud Atlas, which mm. for anybody who hasn't read it, it has this march forward and then backward in time. It's completely symmetrical. So if section A is told from the perspective of a character in, I don't remember, but let's say like the 1650s, section B is set in the 1800s, section C is in 1950, et cetera, and it goes forward way into the future, then the structure of the novel could be mapped as A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A. So it's this perfectly symmetrical march kind of toward an apex in time and then back in the same order. And I was fascinated by the formality of that. Like, I loved the idea of not writing a crazily fragmented book that jumps all over the place in time. Um, so I really, I tried to make that work with Glass Hotel. And the first round editorial notes, and, you know, I'll preface this by saying I love my editors and they're geniuses. They were absolutely right about this. Um, yeah, that their notes were basically, uh, could you please change everything? Like, including the <laughs> You know, what I realized is it's really hard to build dramatic tension when you're obligated by the structure to return to these specific points in time with specific people. Um, so, yeah, I just couldn't make the structure work from the perspective of narrative tension. So although this book is much more linear than my previous books were, you, know, you don't start jumping around until pretty far in, except for the first chapter. Um yeah, I uh, I ended up having to make it less linear, less organized, and more fragmented. Um, and it was kind of a trade-off that I had to, had to make just for the sake of narrative tension. Like, it just was not suspenseful enough with the structure that I tried. Mm. Um, yeah, so I would say the structure was absolutely the hardest thing about this book, trying to get it right. And could you walk us through your process at all? Just because I love the way that it's nonlinear and I would long to write this way at some point in my life. But do you do you start writing chronologically and then you break it into pieces and, and kind of restructure the puzzle? Or do you write in a nonlinear way? I'm just so fascinated at how this comes together. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I do write in a nonlinear way. There's kind of no plan, which is a little bit terrifying. There's also freedom in that. Um, I just start writing and see what happens. And, you know, I see, I just start writing a scene. Um, the scene kind of evolves into a chapter. And then as I'm writing, I'm figuring out what the characters are, who they are, and how they fit. And I just write kind of different sections and then figure out later how it all goes together. So, yeah, it's pretty haphazard. Um, on the other hand, you know, I keep using the word freedom. Maybe flexibility is better. There is a lot of flexibility, you know, because I always feel like I could reorder the chapters and even the sections and have a completely different book. So that's kind of terrifying, but also really interesting for me as a writer. Um, I always feel like the book I end up with, that it's really just one out of any number of options for the way the book could have gone. Um, I would say a real advantage to writing that way, to jumping all over the place, is that although I'm not sure I believe in writer's block per se, of not being able to write anything, I do definitely have moments where I feel kind of stuck. You know, I've written three Vincent chapters, say, and I just have no idea where I was going with this character. Um, it's fine. I can set her aside and go write about Paul and like figure out later, you know, how it all fits into the larger work. So, yeah, it's a disorganized way of working that leads to an unbelievably messy first draft. And then, um, you know, it, after that, it's just years of revision, just going over it again and again and again um, to find the novel in the mess of the first draft. And how long did it take you to write The Glass Hotel? Uh, forever. It took me five years, <laughs> which is like, that's literally twice my average. <laughs> 11 was two and a half years. Um, you know, the problem was partly logistical. So... I had an epic promotional tour for Station Eleven. And then once the tour was over, oh yeah, I got pregnant during the tour um, and gave birth like two months after the tour finished. Wow. Um, having a child is wonderful. It does not speed up your writing process. There's <laughs> much less time afterwards than there was before. Um, yeah, so, you know, it was partly just traveling too much and dealing with a baby. But 
there was also the sort of inevitable pressure of trying to follow a book like Station Eleven, which which had been successful in a way that still feels like winning the lottery, which is totally improbable. Um, Yes, it took forever to write this book and it took forever to figure out what the book was. You know, I had this really messy, unwieldy first draft and trying to find the novel and that raw material was really hard. It took a long time. What, what was the first scene you wrote of The Glass Hotel? Like I'm assuming, I, I read, I think I saw somewhere that you wrote during the publishing, like during when Station Eleven was being released, probably to keep you from going crazy, you were working on something else. Um, I was, yeah. So yeah. what was that first tip, scene? Uh, yeah. yeah, pro tip, right? <laughs> a, yeah, pro tip, uh, writing is the antidote to publishing. Yes. Like I've, uh, I've always said that and I'll stand by it. Um, publishing is totally out of your control. Writing is yeah. in your control. So, yeah, I find it really important to be working on a novel while I'm promoting the previous book. Um, yeah, but anyway, so the first scene, one of the... Uh, I would say the main starting point for this book was I was fascinated by Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, which of course collapsed about 12 years ago um, in New York. I was fascinated by the scale of that crime, you know, a 65 billion with a B dollar Ponzi scheme. What really drew me to it though, is that a financial crime on that scale requires a staff. You know, he's not going to sit there and format his own fake account statements. He's a billionaire. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) About six or seven people went to prison who'd worked with him on this crime. And at the time, I had a day job at the Rockefeller University in New York. I'm, that university is all science. I'm not a scientist, but I did administrative work for a million years. So, um, yeah, I was doing admin stuff for the lab. And what I found myself thinking about was the camaraderie that you can have uh, with your colleagues, you know, with any group of people who come together every day. And I was just thinking of how much more intense that would be mm-hmm. if you were coming to work on Monday to perpetuate a massive crime. I mean, that's kind of crazy to think about. So uh, my point of fascination was the staffers. I do like to emphasize that there are no real characters in this book. It's not about Madoff or his staffers or his investors or his family. But the crime is the same. So the first part of the book I ever wrote was what eventually became Chapter 10. And uh, that's this introduction to the Ponzi staffers. So that chapter opens with, we'd crossed a line. And yeah, so that was, that was the first thing I ever wrote in the book. And then, you know, through three years of revision or whatever it was, it ended up, yeah, Chapter 10 instead of Chapter 1. I love that those characters are so important to you because there's um, a scene, you know, I don't want to give anything away to listeners who haven't read yet, but when kind of the um, the 11th hour before things go bad for them and you have a scene where one of the women, after trying to cover a bunch of things up, falls asleep underneath her desk and then she wakes up in the <laughs> yeah. middle of the morning panicked only to realize that someone had put a coat over her and she started crying because it was so meaningful to her in that moment. And for yeah. whatever reason, I actually got tears in my eyes in that moment because it just the sheer stress and how the smallest things in those moments of terror can just be yeah. your lifeline. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even though they've committed an awful crime and they absolutely belong in prison, I found them weirdly sympathetic with yeah. staffers. You know, they just really messed up in a really kind of epic way, uh, but they're still human and, yeah, I, I enjoyed writing about them. It was interesting. Um, so I was wondering, oh, Catherine, did you have something? Did you want to follow up Actually, on that? Actually, yeah. You have this amazing quote, just kind of sticking on this idea of money and influence. And I feel like the with the staffers, you know, I can imagine if being put into a situation like that, how... Uh, challenging, but also just the the prospect of so much money and and just feeling stuck in this position. And you have this uh, amazing line where one of your characters is talking about, uh, to quote, you know what I've learned about money. I was trying to figure out why my life felt more or less the same in Singapore as it did in London. And that's when I realized that money is its own country. And I was so struck by that excerpt is it, it truly is. And I just, I was wondering what your relationship is with affluence, because you do have this very fascinating way in Station Eleven as well with dealing with affluence and money and and how it affects right. these characters. Yeah, it's it is it is a really interesting topic to me. Um, I grew up in a very working class environment, but I have this life now where 
inevitably most of the people I deal with, I mean, literary fiction and publishing, um, most of them are not from, from a working class environment. You know, most of them grew up uh, middle class or upper middle class or with quite a bit of money. Um, and it's just been kind of a fascinating education over, I would say, most of my adult life at this point, just to see what a different experience of the world those people have, you know, who, who mm-hmm. have always had a safety net. They just have a completely different mindset and have a completely different level of confidence. Um, they move through the world in such a different way. And I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory sense. Like I actually, I've definitely had moments of trying to like emulate their confidence. You know, it's something to aspire to. Um, but yeah, it really interests me. The, the, uh, the profundity, I guess, of, of that influence on you, you know, of, of having grown up with money or not. Um, yeah, this idea of a country of money. I mean, I've never been fabulously wealthy, but I've, I've had a few sort of luxurious experiences, I guess, where, you know, for example, um, last October, back in the magical world when we still got on airplanes and gathered <laughs> in rooms, um, I was going back and forth to Los Angeles because I, I was working on a TV project. And I have an enormous stash of air miles on Delta because I traveled so much for Station Eleven. So a couple of times I used the miles to upgrade to Delta One, like their their highest class of service. Um, And the way that would work is I would board the airplane at LAX like 10:30 at night, um, go immediately to like 180 degrees with my in my little pod, um, have a very comfortable five hour nap, wake up as the plane was landing in New York, and I felt like the luxury. It was like a kind of flattening of experience in a way where it somehow rendered the distance unconvincing. You know, it's like I would land in New York in the morning and I didn't really believe that I was in a different city somehow. It was just such a smooth, continuous, frictionless experience. Um, And I think that having an enormous amount of money and just having every one of your needs sort of just met as a matter of course, I think that might provide a similar sort of frictionlessness so that your life might feel quite similar in London as it does in New York, you know, with the, um, the changing cities being more backdrop than anything else. But yeah, it, it does seem to me that people at a certain level of wealth, they do sort of live in their own country yeah. and it's kind of the same country, you know, depending on, uh, you know, no matter where they are in a way. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I've, as, as young people, I don't know if, you guys can relate. When I was younger, I used to think of red eyes as being a fabulous use of time. And, yeah. but then the, the, the cost, right. If you're, if you're, you know, as I would be flying is like economy and like a middle seat, the, the cost of that flattening of time or that well, quote unquote, well used time was like a little piece of your soul as you exited that plane, <laughs> you know, cause it's just, yeah, you're just, exactly. so, just, you know, I, I just remember walking off those planes and being every single time being like, it wasn't worth it. That wasn't worth just it. Just being like shattered. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. a very special way, that like red eye shattering, which is different than the Delta one. I slept for the five hours, you know, <laughs> feeling. That's, it's the opposite experience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but sticking on this idea of money, I'm not sure where the question is in this, but so so there's the one experience of like people who maybe were born in into wealth and then there's a different mm-hmm. experience of of growing up with without money in some way where as you get older you you start to change you become a little more if you come into money you become more discerning in certain things that you do right like i grew up yeah. and i thought old navy was like the greatest thing that ever happened this is a clothing yeah. company in america right and then and then all of a sudden i thought the gap now the gap is where it's at and then when I was like, I got yeah. a little older, it was Banana Republic. And I'm like, whoo, that's the mm-hmm. pinnacle. Then that's it went to yeah. Nordstrom. Then it went to like, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue. And like, but it, I, I don't believe I'll ever touch, like, I'm not going to go buy Fendi, right? Or Gucci or anything. Yeah. But you can yeah. see this process along the way. And I can look at it in lots of different avenues of our life. Like I used to just get whatever olive oil existed that was the cheapest. And now I'm like, is it extra virgin? Did it come from these olives, <laughs> right. right? Is it organic? Was it like yes. fair traded? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's, but there's certain like holdouts. Like one is like, uh, you know, I'm like, how expensive of a couch should I ever really buy? You know, uh, so I'm wondering how, has yeah. you, have you had that similar kind of experience in terms of like, you're so discerning when it comes to probably every word choice and every sentence you write down. And then you see that discernment when you have money start to trickle into other avenues of your life. 
Definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, I used to just buy the cheapest coffee. Now I have, um, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit we're a two Nespresso machine household. Like I had one and my husband <laughs> wanted a different coffee. <laughs> so like, you know, if that's not a mark of like yuppie insanity, I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know what you were talking about, the sort of moving target in terms of what you're willing to pay for and what you, yeah, like what you buy, I guess. I mean, I had the same thing where, you know, I loved the gap. And and then you get to a different point in your life and you're like, but the t-shirt fell apart after six months. I want mm-hmm. something better. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then you find yourself spending amounts of money on clothes that you like would have uh, made you faint, you know, when you were mm-hmm. 20. But now it's like, okay, I'll spend $300 on a blazer that I think will last forever. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. But yep. there are still these artificial lines. Like I wouldn't spend $400 on a blazer. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but $300 is yeah, okay. So, $399 is fine. Maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and maybe the upshot is just that there's maybe something always a little bit emotional and illogical, you know, in our, in our relationships yeah. with money. Yeah. I mean, cause I still will not, sometimes I will go park in economy and walk a quarter mile rather than park in the parking deck because it's $8 more a day. And I don't know, there's something like, as yeah. you sit down in your first class. Right. Seat. But I'm willing to, you know, like <laughs> exactly. pay all my miles yeah. for the, but, but like, I really wanted to save those $8. Like it just made me connect with my childhood for a split second or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or like I turn my daughter's dresses into skirts when they're too big for her. Oh, and I'm like, you know, this is what we need to do to save money. And it's yes. like, what, I saved $7? Like, that's how much a skirt would have cost. For like two hours of labor to turn this thing into a different article of clothing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so back to the the the, the writing process. Um, so there, yeah. I saw an Instagram post of yours, and I actually saw this a couple months ago, and I showed it to Catherine, because you took a, a, a picture of like a work, Word document on your computer, and you basically had like a chunk of text and then in brackets, like something <laughs> oh, like yeah. insert something smart here or thoughtful here or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Are you actually able to kind of parachute back in and then like not write a scene in flow, but kind of actually wait and wait and wait and then come up with the perfect graph or scene? Like, does that work that like insert this here? It's been something between the two of us now <laughs> where we're like, insert a Mandel. Okay. We'll come back to this. <laughs> right. Insert something profound here. Yeah. Um, mm. That's my whole document, yeah. by the way. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. like a, yeah, insert, insert, insert. Um, it doesn't work for me when I'm actually like writing, writing, like trying to come up with a draft. But at that point, I, yeah, I was looking at that the other day and trying to figure out like what was going on. Um, I feel like that was about my second or third round of editorial notes. It's like there was already a novel, but... Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly. An editor must have said, I think we need a scene here with Vincent and whoever, or she needs to say something in the boat scene, like whatever it was. So yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do that when I was just writing, but, um, but yeah, I guess for revisions, it worked for me. You know, it makes me think, um, not that I'm comparing myself in any way with Joan Didion, but this amazing thing I read once she'd written where it was a very, it was a first draft of one of her essays or one of her short stories. Um, did she write short stories? A piece of fiction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and the, uh, yeah, and the text, it was like XXX, he said, putting out his cigarette, XXXXX. And it was like, she just had the beat without having the content, which fascinated me. So yeah, it was kind of cool to see that that can be done, but I couldn't do that with a first draft. Yeah, because I always, like, if if I'm writing and I don't have, like, you know, there's, if you're writing a sentence and then there's, you have that little itch inside your brain that's like, you can, there's something more to say here. You can say this in a way that, like, I need a metaphor here. I need a metaphor here. But, you know, there's conflicting advice on, like, how long do you sit there trying to think of the metaphor before you're certain that that metaphor will suck if you use it? Like, what is the time frame? There's something to be said for just moving on. Uh, And, you know, as I think about it, in the first draft, I reason like several drafts in, I will have points in the text where it's just like a line of X's. And those are there so that when I'm revising later, I can do like a, um, a search for like XXXXX. And then I find those points in the manuscript that I tagged where like something's missing or something's wrong. Well, speaking of inspiration, um, especially in this book, you have so many amazing locations in the Glass Hotel. Do you as a writer, do you actually try to go to all of these places for inspiration or how much of it is kind of Google search versus 
maybe you were on your 180 flatbed <laughs> on the way <laughs> right, to a right. nice location. It happened to be passing through LAX. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, it's mostly places that I've just been to, you know, through the course of my life. I, I, I know writers who will travel for research and that somehow just always seemed like such a luxury to me. Yeah. I, you know, it used to be, well, how do I take enough vacation time at my day job to, you know, spend a week wherever. Um, and now it's like, well, what do I do with my four-year-old while I'm gallivanting around Greece or like, you know, whatever it is that I want to research. So yeah, you know, I take opportunities, um, to travel interesting places as they come. Um, but yeah, so I guess I've never really traveled specifically for research. I'm most comfortable writing about places where I've spent a lot of time. Um, so Vancouver Island, you know, New York. Uh, I've never been to Dubai, but I feel like that's okay in this book because Dubai is like a fantasy life. So it doesn't have to be real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as we've mentioned, that you ha- you wrote three previous novels before Station Eleven and now The Glass Hotel. And I'm wondering, in, even in the lead up to Station Eleven, which just blew up in a, a way that your three previous books hadn't, did you have a little sense that you had written something special and different? Like, were you like, I think, I think people are going to really love this one, or did it catch you by surprise, the response to it? A little bit of both. So, yeah, I published, I published three novels with a very small press called Unbridled Books. They were wonderful. I had such a good editor there. Everybody was so dedicated to books and writing. But it's so hard to find readers if you're with a small press. You know, there just isn't the marketing muscle to compete with a Penguin Random House, which is kind of sad because there's a lot of talent in the small press world. But, yeah, you know, I published three books. Um, to be absolutely honest, I was a little bit done with $32 royalty checks. You know, I was, I was, like, I was not selling that. <laughs> so, and I would have been okay with being an administrative assistant forever and also writing. But I just had this feeling as I was writing Station Eleven that maybe I'd written something a little bit more um, commercially appealing than my first three books had been. So it seemed like a good moment to try to make the jump to a bigger press. And it just worked out better than I ever would have imagined. You know, it was kind of amazing. Um, the book was sold at auction, which means it was a bidding war. And it was, yeah, it was just really an extraordinary experience. There were, and you know, even then I was, I was worried that the book wouldn't sell. You know, it's such a long path from selling a book uh, to your publisher to, you know, it comes out a year later and then like reviews start coming in and it sells or it doesn't. Um, but yeah, there were some really good early signs um, that it was uh, that it would be successful. It's really that, that book feels like winning the lottery, you know. Which I say not to denigrate the book in any way. I do believe in it, but there's such an incredible element of luck involved in terms of which book is commercially successful and which isn't. And yeah, it, it was just I don't know. It was something I never could have predicted or imagined. Yeah. And speaking of, we, we read that in a past life, you were a dancer and I was, and I I know you've answered this question so many times before, but just for our listeners, how, how did you start writing? How did you become a writer? Make that leap, that pirouette, that fun. Yeah. It's a weird leap. Like fondue. (laughs) What is it? Jete. There we go. Fondue. I'm like, that's cheese. That sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I was homeschooled as a kid, which I've noticed, I grew up in Western Canada and British Columbia. Uh, what I tell Americans I was homeschooled, they get this sort of wary look on their face. Mm-hmm. Because oh, our producer homeschools yes. all of her children. She's right so here she's, nodding. She's like, yes. oh, okay, okay. Great. Throwing happy signs um, right now. <laughs> you know, if, if you say it, if you say it in certain parts of the U.S., it's kind of taken its code for like really hardcore anti-science fundamentalist Christianity. Yes. Like we're keeping the kids home to never hear the name Darwin. You know? um, <laughs> but my, but my parents. Uh, you know, my parents were hippies. That was just kind of the counterculture, back to the land thing to do in the 80s. So they, uh, and the schools around us weren't that great. So they kept me home for kindergarten, just as an experiment. And then that experiment somehow kept going until I was like 15. But there was a period of time when I was eight or nine years old, when one of the requirements of the curriculum was that I had to write something every day. So that got me into the habit of writing from a really early age. And it was just something that I truly loved. Um, I thought of it as a hobby because I, I was 
hell bent on being a dancer. You know, I was one of those kids who was at the ballet studio six days a week. It was pretty intense. I went to school for contemporary dance after high school. Um, I went to the School of Toronto Dance Theater, which is a conservatory program. And this was kind of a surprise, but by the time I graduated, I just kind of didn't love it anymore. Sometimes, sometimes a thing that you want to do for your whole life can start to feel like a little bit of a chore and not a joy. And there was just really no more pleasure in it. So, you know, that kind of raised the obvious question. Like here I was, I didn't have a high school diploma. I never bothered to get my GED. Um, I'd done a year of community college and then three years in non-degree granting conservatory program and contemporary dance. (laughs) So like no degrees whatsoever of any kind. Um, So the obvious question is like, well, if you're not going to be a dancer, then what are you going to do with your life? Um, so it was around that time that I just began to take writing more seriously. And it was a slow process of going from thinking to myself as a dancer who sometimes wrote to thinking to myself as a writer who sometimes danced uh, to just focusing completely on the writing. Um, and it was around that time when I was, I guess, 21 or so that I started writing what eventually became my first novel, Last Night in Montreal. Uh, so speaking of the counterculture that you you said that your parents kind of raised you in, you have this mm-hmm. concept in your newest book about having a counter life. And yeah. I am obsessed with this idea now because I want to know what my counter life is. And uh, it's just the main character when he's in jail, he starts fantasizing about, like you said, Dubai, a place where you don't have to go, yeah. but you can write about. And um and then this concept of, you know, when you die, does your counter life die with you? I, I, I love this idea. And I wanted to know, what is your counter life? Um, you know, I feel like my counter life is pretty clear cut just because of my dance background. Yeah. Mm. It's so easy for me to imagine a life where I stayed in Toronto and kept going with dance and never started writing seriously and never moved to the United States. And I don't know, like that life, Given my background and education, that life seems so much more plausible than the life I'm actually living. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, uh, it's, not, it's not so vivid that I have visions of it and wonder if actually that's the real life. But, but yeah, that's the one that I think of. Are you Do you happy? think of it wistfully? Yeah. <laughs> when you Sorry, think of that? dance? When you think of uh, this counter life as a dancer, do, 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 is the energy you're getting like, oh, you're happy and content in that life? I uh, know because I was kind of done with dance. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know what that life actually looked like. Yeah. Okay. It's so the penultimate question, you know, cause we have our, our there are always our last one, but, um, and so because this book, not quite as fragmented or nonlinear as station 11, but if we, if we look at the work you did to order the chapters and I, and I mentioned this Mm -hmm. when I talked to to Glennon Doyle, but like it always makes me think of making a mixed CD when you're young and how important the order is and how you think so much about how like one note goes in into the other and one song. Yeah. The transition. Yeah. yeah. Like is how was it just like a feeling you had as you would, you know, you'd look as one chapter ended, then you begin another where you like that, that makes sense. How did you go about that process of making sure that, the way you put it together, like felt right to you. Um, it was mostly that. It was mostly like make, making a mix CD. Uh, this kind of intuitive sense of what goes into what thing. Um, sometimes it was a little bit more formal, like a section in the middle of the book where I think every second chapter is a counter life, and then other things are interspersed. Like trying to find a pattern there, just for a sense of cohesion. Um, Sometimes I would just have a sense in terms of the plotting of the book and like the, I keep going back to this idea of narrative tension, just having the book be suspenseful enough that the next chapter needed to be the counterlife or needed to be the Ponzi staffers or the chapter where it's revealed to Vincent that it's a Ponzi scheme. And then I'd have to kind of go back and like do cleanup and try to, you know, rewrite the end of the last chapter to transition more easily into Mm -hmm. the next one. So yeah, more intuitive than anything else, but definitely other factors at play. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, Emily, most most important question of the entire interview, as always. It's because our podcast is called Free Cookies. So we obviously have to ask you, what is your favorite cookie? Um, I love that question. Nobody's <laughs> ever asked me that before. <laughs> okay, so I'm pre-diabetic, so I can't do carbs or sugar. 
But there are some great substitutes. I also make these really good almond flour chocolate chip cookies. Ooh. You can buy, um, yeah, you can buy these really good uh, sugar-free chocolate chips from Lily's. Lily's, chocolate. Ooh, yes, Lily's. we have mm. that. Yeah, I love Lily's. And there's a sweetener called sold by a company called Lacanto, and it's a mix of monk fruit, which is some yes. kind of magic fruit that's sweet but keeps your glycemic index down. Um, yeah, monk fruit with erythritol, which is like the only digestible sugar alcohol. I know way too much about this stuff yeah, because I love cookies. Is that like a xylitol kind work. of? Uh, I think so, yeah. Hmm, okay. It's similar. Um, yeah, so anyways, uh, the upshot is I've got a great recipe for low-carb chocolate chip cookies if anyone's interested. Oh, okay. We, yeah, we might have to snap it from you and share it because people will definitely want to know what this cookie is. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The yoga wellness world always wants your almond flour monk juice cookies. That's right. We want it. We want it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Amazing. Um, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat with us. You are so lovely and we are so honored to get to read your words. Thanks, Emily. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Bye. And that is a wrap for today's episode with the lovely, amazing, beautiful Emily St. John Mandel. And if you want to actually hear Emily's book recommendations that she would be reading if she weren't busy homeschooling her daughter right now, you can go to The Inky Phoenix on Instagram. It's at The Inky Phoenix. And that is the book club that my uh, wife, who you know. That's me. Catherine started... Six weeks ago. So go follow at the Inky Phoenix. Yes, and we are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. And you can find us at Instagram at Free Cookies Podcast or on online. Gmail. Gmail, free cookies podcast at gmail.com if you want to shoot us a note. This is our favorite part of the show, by the way. Um, speaking of notes, we have two new reviews. So if you want to take the time to rate and review us, generally speaking, kindly would be. I mean, even if it's a one-star awesome. review, just like a kind one-star review. Although it review. turns out if you give us a one-star review like Jacqueline S. did with the acronym JFC, which by the way, that's the title of a review. We had to look it up, JFC. And I think she put it up on Easter. And it JFC, I, I typed into the Google machine, JFC meaning, and it means Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, and her view was couldn't get through a minute of this, which is unfortunate, Jacqueline, because that means you don't get to the part where we give away $10,000 at the which end of the show. right now. Yeah, so it's if, happening, Jacqueline. Sorry about that. Yeah, we are going to look you up and consider you for the $10,000, but it's not looking good right now. But we did have another review, right? But yes, the other review totally makes up for it because it's five stars and it's from Free Cookies for President. <laughs> I look forward to this killer podcast every week, a perfect blend of comedy, current events, and cookies. Need I say more? Thank you, Free Cookies for President. You totally negated the JFC. All right, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Bye.